When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, adulting well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, That's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, and if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. I know things are getting tougher when you can't get the top off the bottom of the barrel. What up and roll my future now? Looking fucking now. Welcome to the Adulting Well Podcast. I am your co-host Joshua, and I am joined as always by your co-host Kevin. And tonight we have a very old friend, uh, someone I consider to be one of the um, most influential record label slash producers uh, in the punk scene. Um, author. Author. And gen- just genuinely good guy, Larry Livermore on. World Traveler. World Traveler. Yes, and I'm, I, you know, as always, I, I feel lucky and fortunate with the guests we get because I'm always super excited, and uh, as always, so we would like to welcome Larry on. Welcome, Larry. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Joshua. It's great to, to talk with you. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with the both of you together at the same time. I don't so think so. this is a special I, treat. Yeah, and strangely, you know, we're playing in a band with Chuck from Monsula now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, All right. Yeah. Wait. Uh, You're bringing emo back in the 21st century. <laughs> We're trying. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. There's some DC influence there, Larry. Chuck appreciates it when I call us a grunge band. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, so, yes, he would. But uh, this is this is pretty interesting news. I've been noticing lately. There seems to be a little bit of a, a revival of that sort of energy, and I've always found it interesting how the 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 long cycle of uh, iterations that the whole concept of emo has uh, has gone through because obviously you, you speak to anybody under the age of about 40 or 50 and, and mention emo and it's going to mean something completely different mm-hmm. uh, to them than, than say, you know, when I first heard the term, it was the rights of spring in uh, 1986 and that was about it. That was emo. Yeah. Right. And, and it's been through so many things and now it seems to be, there seems to be like a, uh, interest in reviving that again, yep. Or maybe it never died, but I think it hides sometimes it. and gets bad haircuts. 
<laughs> We're not an emo band. Are we an emo band? I don't know. I, there's definitely. I expect, there, I expect you guys are. There's yes, there, I don't, I there's don't no to, to, to slander you or start trouble, <laughs> but uh, there's no avoiding DC influence when you're playing with Chuck. That's for sure. Well, so. that's the thing is when when that trend first started catching on at Gilman. You know, we went through a phase in the early years of Gilman where it was mostly pop punk and goofy punk and you know isocracy and. Mm-hmm fun fun stuff and then around the early 90s when a lot of those younger kids started getting they got to their 20s and they started getting them serious well, you know like you know i'm not listening to that kid music anymore i'm like you know really getting into my heart you know then that's <laughs> it was that, that's when the the, the 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 new wave of emo hit the east bay and it was always it was funny about those guys because you could never say anything to them without them sort of arching their eyebrow just a little bit like uh as you know you always were sure afraid you might have said something quite not quite right you know, <laughs> not quite cool enough it was kind of the mild version of the hardcore straight edge kids yeah. uh, who sometimes overlapped but but them basically the hardcore ones if you like said basically anything especially something funny or trying to be funny <laughs> they would just they would just cross their arms and look at you it's like very oh, serious you business you know oh the nazis have just arrived in town to yeah. destroy everything <laughs> I, I, but, think, um, I think that i uh, definitely can relate i suffered from that a bit and were, was in bands with people that were oh i was just gonna say that offended. reminded me of a right. band that you were in like that was siren's whole <laughs> shtick was being too serious <laughs> even more so in engage actually oh yeah right right yeah, i still get comments about the uh the the engage song on that can of pork uh uh compilation by the way like how it did uh, not fit in with anything else on there well, a lot of that was an interesting record that can of fork because a lot of the things did not fit in with anything, and uh, there are certain things on that record that I still do not understand to this day. Um, <laughs> I, I'll have to say this: that was the first uh, major project we did at Lookout um, that I didn't have that much of a hand in, right. and that uh, I kind of turned over to Chris and Pat, my junior partners, uh, yeah. to do their own thing and it was and eclectic it, it was it i love that album both, that, that all means so much surprising me. and satisfying results and yeah. others that i i honestly couldn't explain the engaged song myself either so don't feel bad <laughs> that album became like the soundtrack to a summer for me though you know and yeah. it's like to this day like every single song on it is meaningful to me whether i like those bands or not you know just on the album like i love that album as an album yeah so i yeah I, it's probably I, i'm sorry it's a probably a generational thing because for me you know the thing that a floyd kind of served that that function i got in like a couple years too late too. for that to be the one it's the same like kerplunk is my green day album because that's the same right. era of well so well cherish your cherish your youth yeah i know then uh, 39 smooth will probably even though technically kerplunk is a, a better album on many accounts uh you know, for me, 30 months, nine smooth will always be the green day album. Right. Yeah. Along with American idiot. So, I mean, uh, you know, not, I'm not, uh, we've known each other a really long time. So it's, it's, it's almost difficult to interview you in some ways because we've spent time together personally. I've known you, you know, I think my first trip to Gilman street was probably in either 1988 or 89. Um, and that late, Oh my God, I thought I didn't realize you were such a poser. I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> what, what were you, like 16 or something? <laughs> yeah, I think I was 17. And um, I'd moved back from the Detroit area, which we share in common. I didn't live there as long as you and did not grow up there, but I did live there briefly. Um, well, you uh, didn't get as much damage done probably then. That's probably true I, as well. Although I did I did get some uh, salubrious in influences from uh, Detroit, too. Yeah, and, absolutely. In fact, yesterday, at, or rather at the weekend, uh, the Queens, the local branch of the Queens Library put on a, a musical presentation, which is, I thought was pretty interesting. Was, you know, they have an auditorium with live bands and everything, and they did a presentation about the links between doo-wop and Motown, mm-hmm. which, of course, I was high in about... Uh, 300 other 70-year-olds were there, like, <laughs> very excitedly singing along. Wow. So, you know, I want to set a little bit of context, you know, and we, we mentioned it on the intro, but I mean, you know, you can't really actually fully gauge the influence of uh, what was going on when you were putting out records on Lookout and 
Gilman Street on the rest of the punk world at that time. I mean, it felt like being in a touring band um, and going to other places, everybody wanted to be like the East Bay, um, you know, and I, I just, you know, it's something that had deep effects on me and it still does in, you know, the choices I make in terms of business and how I deal with people, you know, in a lot of ways, um, it was the thing that influenced me to put on shows in Sonoma County and really be in bands. I felt like watching that scene, um, in the early days, especially, uh, you just got the feeling and you can speak to this cause you were part of this growing up there for them and yourself, um, that it, pretty much anybody could be in a band if they wanted to. And it was just a really special thing. It's interesting. You mentioned the idea of like going out around the country with, with a band and discovering like that kind of impact that was like, you know, it was flowing around and touching people in all sorts of places where you wouldn't have expected them to have ever heard of anything you're doing. Cause it, it kind of put me in mind of, uh, a couple years earlier, by the time you started going out, um, there was this sort of beginning to be a well-worn or well-trodden path yep. that led through all of the different little scenes all around the, the country. But that was not always the case. And, you know, Operation Ivy and, uh, and to some extent, Crim Shrine too, were, sort of helped blaze that trail. I mean, there, it was, it, in the idea in the mid to late eighties of, uh, like a completely unknown band of teenagers going on a national tour mm-hmm. was, you know, if they weren't on a big label or something, it was, it was just like, seemed ridiculous. And then no, it just didn't happen. And that was one of the experiences that the op Ivy guys, when they started, Phoning back. I mean, of course, back then, of course, you had there was no uh, internet or texting or anything. They had to find some way of getting cheap or free long distance calls from wherever they were, usually from payphone, and um, and they would say, "They they knew all the words to our song. How could that happen? You know, that kind of (laughs) that kind of thing." And it didn't happen in every town. Some places only a couple people showed up, but a a lot of places they went, it was like already there was people there singing along and knowing all the words and, you know, to who, to whom, uh, Gilman and the East Bay was like the, the, the land of Oz, this magical, mystical, wonderful place that all these amazing things happened. And, you know, we had just been a, a handful, little, literally a handful of people just sort of bumbling along, trying to find a place that we could consistently put on shows. And suddenly it was like resonating first around the country and eventually around the world. I mean, there's still people. I mean, I I go to Europe or to Asia now, and there are, there will be people who want who want to not just ask me, but tell me all about the stuff that happens in the East Bay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. By '92, that scene was the blueprint. Yeah. You know, like when That's I started sure. going to shows in '92, it was oh, we're gonna have our little club, we're gonna have our little label, we're gonna have our comic bus guy, we're gonna have like you almost like like patterned it after the East Bay all over the country in these little tiny cities right. you have these little scenes popping up. And of course you're going to get in your car and go on tour because that's what every band does, you right. know? Yeah. So, But there's a little bit of a problem with that too, although it sounds awesome and it is awesome. But when things get turned into a formula, which they do regardless of what your intentions are, you know, if something works, of course you're going to try to replicate it. Right. And, eventually the formula is in danger of becoming more important than this, the substance or the essence of it. I mean, I, I noticed that around nine, also around 1992, when, when Lookout, the, the, the label was starting to become a fairly successful thing, and in large part due to Operation Ivy and then Kerplunk with uh, Green Day, um, people kept chasing me down, literally. I mean, literally chasing me around with demo tapes. Uh, oh, wow. Hey, we sound just like Green Day. You you got to hear this. Oh, I mean, yeah. Well, we we we'll sell we'll sell even more than they do, and uh, you know, and often they did sound not just like, but they 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 had that sound. They just didn't have that genius or inspiration. But the minute you start trying to sound like your favorite band, or the band that is the flavor of the moment you know, you've, you've already lost whatever yeah. chance you had to be something special and unique. Right. And that same thing goes, if you want to be as crass as to call it a business plan. And, and in the, some extent, 
every band has something like a business plan, even if they don't have any dream about ever making money. They they at least don't want to go broke or they don't want to get laughed at. They want to play shows that somebody comes to. That's their that's their plan. And if they too closely replicate what was done before, eventually it just does become a, a formula and it loses a lot of the magic. And and you know, we were in a very lucky position in the in the eighties when when Gilman started because pretty much most of the original punk scene in all of its glory and all of its uh terribleness had had faded away. It was it was in a in a very low point. Um it was in it was ripe to be completely redone and rewritten. Yeah. Um you know the the first the first uh, the first punks. I mean, they really pushed that idea about anybody can be in a band, but it was pretty contrived. You know, it was mostly on major labels. There was a lot of image consultants and mm-hmm. fashion photographers and stuff that that put out that whole Im- image, and and it only lasted a couple of years. And then by the beginning of the eighties, you had all these uh, sort of metal crossovers and you know really just sort of aggressive hardcore stuff and. You know, a lot of the original punks are, had uh, decided that the punkest thing you could do was get strung out on heroin and OD. Yeah. Um, yeah. So most most of that was like faded away, and kind of we we did some of what they did originally in '77, only with a new, maybe more lighthearted twist, and not not as self-consciously like we're changing, you know, the world, and we're gonna be like the biggest new thing. It was more like, hey, we're we have we're, we're a bunch of people that are having fun putting on these these shows and starting bands and let's let's have a clubhouse where we can do it and somehow it just grew. Did you grow up with music? Yeah, I think that's. I mean, uh, I, I feel like we need to roll yes a little no. bit back to uh, to growing up in the D because it's uh, you've got some amazing stories from from growing up and and living in Detroit as a as a youngster. Well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, when I was growing up, of course, it was the sort of the PM era and the uh, dawn of the 33 RPM albums. So mm-hmm. there was basically albums were, well, what an album meant when I was a little kid was like a, a whole pack of 78 RPM records. Right. So, and record players had changers. So like, if you, you know, most of my parents' stuff was like, classical or traditional music each one song on each record then then would plop down uh onto onto the next one uh so the whole idea of the 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 album especially as a concept with all the songs linked together that didn't happen until i was already getting into my 20s um but my introduction to music my, my it's weird my parents are older than average when they had had me because of the depression and the war mm-hmm. and everybody in my family history tend to marry late. So basically we had a lot of people hanging around our family that from the 19th century, like uh, that were born between say the 1870s and the 1890s. And so believe it or not, the music that I was first exposed to uh, was the 1890s. <laughs> but, and interestingly enough, that's when pop music, as we now know it, first really became a thing i mean the first big hits like well, hit songs as they would call them were like maybe the 1870s when Stephen foster would steal the slave music and then like pass sheet music around but the 1890s was with the uh, industrialization was the first time that like working people ordinary people had enough disposable income to say hey i like that music i'd like to have that mm-hmm. and there was this real explosion of uh of songwriting and a lot of it was sort of pseudo Irish and pseudo Italian coming out of uh, the hit factories in New York. And I remember uh, suddenly it occurred to me one day what to, to ask my dad, Hey dad, how did you have hit music when you were a boy? Because they didn't have record players yet and they didn't have radio yet. And he said, Oh, well that was, uh, every Friday, every Friday afternoon, the sheet music would come in from New York to the dime store. And we, and we would go down there and pick it up and then, Everybody on one street, on on each street, somebody would have a piano, and they'd take it home and learn to play the songs. And then Friday night, we'd all get around their house and sing the new hits from That's New York. Amazing! That Man, let's so do great. that again. I know. I feel like that should be a thing. Yeah. Well, it would it would be fun, but I mean, he literally remembered it. I mean, he was already yeah. uh, 
you know, a young boy when the first radio broadcast came out in 1920. I mean, he was born in 1913. So, um, and, you know, record players were luxuries for the rich. That I don't think he ever saw, saw one of those till the 30s. So that was, uh, but in when I was growing up, we had one of the first pop records that my parents bought was the greatest hits of the 90s, the gay 90s, they called it, uh, i.e. the 1890s. And so, and our family would sing them all and uh, when we went on car trips. And that's my introduction to pop music. Were they just and kind so of folky I, sing-along type songs? I mean... Yeah, it, it was extremely melodic, extremely catchy, amazing choruses, um, and a lot of novelty songs. Like one, one I vividly remember is Who Threw the Overalls and Mrs. Murphy's Chowder. Do you think Nobody there's a connection spoke, so there? Out it all the louder. Do you think there's a once you come home, Bill Bailey? Uh, I'm sure you probably heard some of these. I but, have, uh, and I'm, I'm making a connection here to the Potato Man. Like, do you think because the, the Potato Man was also like very folksy? It was stripped down. I think it was just acoustic, uh, if memory serves. Um, we started out playing acoustic on the sidewalk um, because the neighbors yelled at us for making too much noise in the in the house. Uh, my room, which was also the lookout office, huh. you know, yeah, um, and we are, it sort of just naturally grew into where, well, we're only going to play on the sidewalk or on the street, um, and we're not going to, uh, ever play on the stage. Uh, we finally changed our mind, but, and played on the stage, but some people thought we lost a lot when we did that. Uh, but yeah, I was always enormously influenced by pop choruses, mm -hmm. things that everybody could sing along to, and uh, I think, you know, that's why I was so receptive to, to Motown when it came along, and, there, you know, that when I was, like, about 12 or 13 when the first Motown hit started coming out, and some of the Motown performers were about the same age as me, so that was pretty, like, uh, Stevie Wonder, like, when I was, like, actually a little bit younger than me but his first song came out and i was like wow that kid is like even younger than me and he's on the radio that's fantastic and then uh then i got to see the supremes and you know that was like my most amazing detroit moment ever probably because as i think I, i've written about in my book you know for the first time ever i saw like black and white people all together dancing and singing and, you know it's hard for people to imagine it today but in the 1950s and even the 60s, Detroit, which is, you know, nowadays is thought of as a largely African-American city. At that time, it was rigidly segregated. It might as well have been in the Deep South. Uh, you could you could live in Detroit all your life and basically never see somebody from the other race. That's, uh, that's how That's how much it was. It was... Uh, and of course, in those days, also it was almost unheard of for for black people to be on television, or visible in almost any way, or in magazines. I mean, they had their own magazines, but not you know, just like a, a a white kid growing up on the outskirts of Detroit could easily not even know about that aspect of culture. And then suddenly, these kids from the projects started their own record label and recorded their own records in their their house. And they were the biggest thing in America. The only thing that rivaled them was the British invasion bands, so, which were also full of rich choruses and uh, very pop. That, so that, it was very inspiring to me. You know, the, the, this, the, this begs the, a question: the working, too, the ordinary working people, the common people, the oppressed people, yeah. taking the means of pr production of culture into their own hands and saying, "Okay, we're we're not going to be spoon fed anymore. We're going to create our own." It, uh, that was a motif that going all the way back to the 50s and 60s for me. Do, do you feel like that influenced you starting Lookout? Totally. I mean, that's, that's basically that was that I can't think of any other reason I started it other than I didn't know who else was going to put out my friend's bands. Yeah. Cause, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I knew that, like, I, I think I wrote about this too. I mean, I, the minute I heard Operation Ivy, I knew they had to have a record out and they were a very small band playing to a very small audience and i was like who in the hell is going to put out their record well i guess i'd better do it yeah even even though i had no idea what i was doing and yeah and as soon as soon as i started down that that course i was i don't know how how quickly i became conscious of it but it wasn't long in fact after op ivy went on their first and only tour 
and came back. They had a big welcome home show at Gilman, and it was one of those things that it was way bigger than anybody expected. Like, you know, we expected 50 people or 100 people, and there was Gilman was packed, mm-hmm. and there was this excitement. Like, wow, our home, our 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 hometown boys have are becoming a big thing. You know, a big thing meaning they might have sold a thousand records, um, but. But it had that same feeling of the Supremes show back in Detroit in 1965 with 20,000 people saying, wow, our hometown girls are the biggest thing in America, Yeah, which they had just become. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, at that point, it was a fully realized notion in my head. It's like, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever be Motown, but I'm definitely going to do that same job for our East Bay scene. So after, I mean, I guess, uh, so grow, you grew up in, in Detroit. Where where did you go? Uh, where was your next stop? Because you, you were relatively transient, if I remember right, from our conversation. <laughs> yes, well, people might say that about <laughs> my life. Right? It might be on my gravestone. He was relatively transient. Um, I, what what happened to, to me, I had a very tumultuous youth. Uh, I couldn't wait to get out of my parents' home in the neighborhood that I grew up in. I did not fit in well there. And what neighborhood was that in the D? It's what they call Down River, which is outside the city limits, but it's like um, have you ever heard of the Ford Rouge plant? It's like at one time it was the biggest auto plant in the world. Um, It's Down River. It's basically everything flows down the river, including all the pollution and the smoke from the factories and stuff. But it wasn't that it was it wasn't that bad. It, it just was just not exciting. If if you ever get a chance to see the MC5 movie, which has been held up in litigation for about ten years now, um, <sighs> but I hope you do because it's the second best rock documentary I've ever seen after Turn It Around. Um, <laughs> it, it starts it 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 starts Shameless out plug. with uh, Wayne Kramer from the MC5. Yep driving around the streets of our old neighborhood because he grew up about a mile away from me mm-hmm. and that's down river it's just it's very bland uh low rise single family houses not a lot to Don't. recommend itself so anyway i couldn't wait to get out when i was uh still 17 i had graduated from high school and had a chance to go away to college um in a nearby town called ypsilanti mm-hmm. uh, which is they also known as Ipsatucky because it's uh, did you already southern flavor. Did you already play an instrument at that point? Were you already playing music? Uh, Ypsilanti was actually where I got my first guitar. But first, uh, we have to cut to the uh, college, which was not very good college, and it was about not as not as challenging as my high school even. Mm. And uh, I can't blame it for for what happened next. But within about two months, I was uh, expelled for for drinking in the dormitories, which was a terrible crime in those days. Um, and so on my 18th birthday, I went to work in, in, uh, in the auto plant, uh, in a, in a local auto plant and midnights with a bunch of, uh, Southerners. Uh, I was the only, I was pinhead Yankee. They, well, two separate <laughs> nicknames. I was the Yankee and I was the pinhead because I'd been to college, even though it was only for two months. <laughs> um, you must be smart. The, uh, the uh, no, thing is with uh, D- Detroit and Ypsilanti, both, wherever there was auto factories, people would come up from the south to, to work because there was a big emptying out of the uh, land in the, in the deep south, um, especially of, of, of black people. It was kind of like after the, the you know after slavery ended they a lot of the black people became sharecroppers and still were tied to the land sort of like the serfs in old england mm-hmm. um but when in when the modern age crept in and industrialization they basically said okay get lost and so suddenly they had no more way to no more no way to make a living they came north um mm-hmm. there's a lot of books and everything written about the great migration north so they came to work in the auto plants and the steel mills up north as did the the white the poor white southerners, so you had these two groups who never got along with each other down south or never interacted, and suddenly they're all working together. But my first factory, it was all southern whites, and uh, they introduced me to Hank Williams, who I'd never heard of, even, and that made me go out and with my hundred dollar a week munificent earnings, which was 
might not sound like a lot today, but it, it was uh, enough that you could buy your own, get your own apartment or even buy your own house in those days. I got a guitar instead and started learning how to play Hank Williams songs. It sounds like a lot when you Beatles, put it in those Beatles terms. Songs and Rolling Stones. Sorry? It sounds like a lot when you put it in those terms. Like... You could work a full-time factory job and get a house and a car and like live a life. Like I don't think you can do and that support now. a family. Yeah, believe yeah. it or not, yeah, <laughs> it was a different time. It's crazy. Well, like you know, my rent my rent was ten dollars a week. So sweet. Um, so did, then anyway, you became the next Hank Williams. And I, I to this day, I'm I was I, somebody asked me a few weeks ago, and I I've been going crazy ever since trying to figure out whatever happened to that darn guitar. Because it was a good one. It was a Gibson. Um, mm. It would cost three hundred dollars in nineteen sixty-six, and I would imagine that would be uh, about three thousand dollars today, uh, or two thousand at least, twenty-five hundred. And it was a nice guitar. And somewhere along the the line, it just disappeared. What's your last memory um, of playing that guitar? Um, at at the at the hillbilly boarding house, actually, I. Uh, because I had been kicked out of the university, I also had nowhere to go. So I went to work. I went, as I said, I went to work at the factory. And the other Southern boys told me I could come live at their boarding house, <laughs> which uh, which was basically all. I was the only non-Southerner, and they, um, the lady that ran it, uh, basically tried to recreate the atmosphere of the Deep South. Right. Um, so, so it was grits for breakfast every morning, and. Uh, through a, sitting there in a cloud of cigarette smoke and a <laughs> little radio playing on top of the refrigerator, and that's where I heard my first uh, Hank Williams song, "Your Cheating Heart." I said, "Gosh, that guy's got a good voice. Who is it?" And I, what the Pinhead hasn't heard of Hank Williams? <laughs> oh, we got to end. And they took turns, all ten of them went round the table, one after another, telling me the story of Hank Williams and uh, how he had lived and died and. You know, at that time, of course, he had not been dead nearly as long, but he and he died on his when he was only 29 years old, and he was the greatest ever. And and I had to agree, he was probably one of the greatest ever, and it was a real tragedy. But anyway, that's what set me off. So I was, uh, yeah, I played that guitar on the sitting on the sofa in the in the boarding house, and I know I ran into some problems because I was uh, drinking beer and. Uh, and smoking cigarettes and fell asleep and set the sofa on fire. And uh, that <laughs> kind of was the end of my uh, time in the boarding house. So, uh, you know, life continued to, to dwindle on down from there. I uh, was the following, about another, I landed up in a hippie commune the year after that. Um, um, that led to some serious difficulties with the uh, authorities, the law. And what do you think? What do you me, think was going on? That led like, me to New York and California and Ohio and um, so on and so on. What yeah, do you go think, ahead. What, what do you do think, think was, was going on with what? With you, like, what do you think you were looking for? I was for? a troubled youth. Yeah. With a or or as is as a, it's a corny old line, but a, a rebel without a clue. Right. Uh, I had. Uh, Really, I uh, was very, very angry, uh, very depressed. Um, I this this will sound pathetic, but um, you know, God bless them. Neither my mom or dad are still around, but my mom, every time I open my mouth about this, she'd say, "Are you still whining about what happened in third grade?" Mm. But <laughs> what what happened in third grade was I kind of got what I felt cheated out of winning the spelling bee to be the best speller in class. Cause, and they gave it to the kid, to the, you know, the, the, the big man on the big kid on campus, the, the tall guy who was good at sports and everything. And just, to, um, I felt at that point at age eight, that the system was rigged and mm-hmm. I was never going to win. Mm-hmm. And my dad was really keen on that idea too. He was a old socialist and he was still bitter about the great depression and the, the war, you know, messing with his life. So basically, I had that influence. I just was all right. I give up. I hate. I mean, up until third grade, I was a great student, uh, reasonably decent kid. At that point, I said, "That's it. I'm against society now. I want to destroy everything." And uh, mm-hmm. I, and I just was a not a good kid anymore. And in my teen mid teens, I discovered alcohol, and my late teens, I discovered drugs, and that that did not improve my mood. So basically, yeah, I. <laughs> became an increasing mess and uh it did not the results were not good i i I kept thinking that i was a real 
genius, a misunderstood genius. So obviously, I just needed to put my genius plans into effect. And but it's true. Um, those those genius plans uh, ultimately led to me like sleeping on basement floors or at one point in a in a treehouse when in March, and uh, I woke up covered in snow. I was like, this is really not working out very well at all. But, um, but I pursued that that course in life for quite a quite a good little while. So when did you, when did you, was there ever a point when you were young, when you found somewhere that you thought like, okay, this is home. Like, these are my people. I feel better. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was not, that wasn't really funny. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I was thought, I thought you were going to ask me if I had some kind of breakthrough and I, I did have a, a at least one minor one, but a, a number, a couple, actually a couple of them. But my breakthroughs often tended to lead to, uh, in the long run, the worst results because <laughs> they, they, when I when I when I accomplished something, it had the secondary effect of making me think I knew what I was doing and therefore was smart and wouldn't wouldn't mm-hmm. get in trouble again. Um, and I was thinking of like 1971. I mentioned sleeping on the basement floor and uh, digging up uh, digging up dandelion greens for so i wouldn't get scurvy from lack of vitamin c wow. um and after a and the first snowstorm came in and i was like oh now what am i going to do for dandelion greens and i stayed up all night brooding about this and somehow it just jumped into my head like oh i guess the problem is that you uh you need money to live hmm. Because I, for about a year and a half, I had been sort of a hippie that said, "Oh, money, uh, money is bourgeois. I, I don't need any." In fact, I gave gave away everything I, I had because I didn't need money. So I said, "Oh, <clears throat> I guess I got to get money," and it, it was just like something clicked in my head, and, and I said, "Oh, okay." And I never was like completely destitute again after that. I had some low points, but it was this. I would, I accept it. All right. I guess I have to do things to get money. Mm-hmm. And they were not always the most legitimate things at first, but, um, you know, that, that was a breakthrough. And then of course I started thinking I was a, a genius. Uh, a similar thing happened, uh, many years later when I had gotten myself into a lot of problem with taking too many drugs, especially the wrong. Well, I think all drugs are not too bright, but I was taking some pretty, destructive ones and I, and my life was ruined and I was like, Oh, I'm going to stop taking drugs. And I did without going to rehab, without anything, any help from. So I thought, again, I'm a genius. I can, I can handle everything. And that unfortunately led me to think, so obviously alcohol wouldn't do any harm. <laughs> and so I can drink as much as I want. So the alcohol, everybody drinks that. You no, know, what's the big deal? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so it took 20 more years before I was like, in just of a ma- much of a mess from that. Uh, so, you know, sometimes these small victories can be our, our undoing. And um, I feel like uh, it was kind of my undoing to some extent with, with Lookout because I, um, I was able to, to handle a lot of the responsibility and uh, the stress at, for, for quite a few years, in fact partly because I was older than most of the people involved and partly because I'd had experience in the past dealing with money and with strange characters. Mm -hmm. But eventually, because I still had this kind of attitude of, you know, I can think, I can figure it out. I could do it. And also this attitude, like everybody's against me. Nobody understands me. It, it eventually became too overwhelming for me. And I felt, and I, and I felt like started blaming look out for all my problems instead of taking responsibility for them myself, which is, you know, not, I, if anything has happened in the last 20 years or so to improve my life, it's basically getting to that point where I could say, Oh, there's a problem. Well, what am I doing to cause this problem or to make it worse? (laughs) And what can I do to change it? That's the exact opposite of how I'd live most of my life, which is like, Oh, there's a problem. Well, who in, the, who in the hell is causing this problem? And why are they doing this to me? Yes. And it was always somebody else or something else until until I kind of grew up uh, in my fifties, <laughs> which is a kind of embarrassing time to grow up. Uh, believe me. Um, 
I know I, I know you guys call your thing adulting well, and I was reflecting on that. Um, because, <laughs> yes, because I feel like I feel like I kind of missed out on most adulting. Uh, wow. Kind of sort of went straight from adolescence to to old age. Uh, uh, I my my life has never been, you know, most of the hallmarks of what people consider adult living like getting married, getting a career, having a family, all that kind of, I've never done any of that stuff. I, I've barely had a proper job. I think that that's a, a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of, uh, auto and steel mill, steel worker jobs when I was, uh, like my late teens and early twenties, none of which lasted very long. Cause as soon as I had enough money to go out and party, why would I want to go to work? I mean, you can't argue with that, but I do think adulting well, like we, we, we have fun with that name, but I think having these kind of stories be told about people and how they're just living their weird lives is, I think, kind of maybe one of the points is there is no way really to adult well. Um, as far oh, as now, like, you tell me. Yeah. I wish you well, would have been around well, two years ago. I, I, I would have felt a lot better. If I, I wish I would have been around two years ago as well. <laughs> to tell me this, but because I don't think it's so much the things that we're doing, it's how we're doing them that changes. Like, I think you kind of, like you said, the way that you look at problems, you turned it into less of a victim-y thing and more of a, what can I do about it? Or um, just generally being less selfish, uh, you know, like, I think these are adulting well traits. Well, you know, and part I would, of, I would, I'll go ahead. Well, part part of it, too, is just the idea that we take sort of the sum of our experience and what do we do with that and how do we inspire and influence the people around us and you know I I think most of the people that I that we've invited on the show there's there's been things in their lives that they've been influenced by and we talked about the influence from Motown for you and starting Lookout and then passing that torch on right and at the time maybe it didn't look pretty when you left Lookout Records for whatever reason but you gave Chris and Pat the opportunity to sort of grow into their roles. And if you had been there, it would have been a very different experience for them, but also the legacy that was left behind. And the fact that now as you've kind of like moved to another phase of your life, you're writing stories about your life to share with people, um, you know, and, and whether or not the intention is there, which I think it probably is in some ways, just knowing you and talking to you over the years, there's a, it's, it's all, it's a it's an opportunity to teach the people that come behind us something that maybe they don't know, you know. And you know, as somebody that grew up close to the East Bay but not in the East Bay, I mean, hell, there's a reason that we were able to do our record labels up in Sonoma County, and it wasn't because we came out with came up with the great idea to do it. We followed the lead of people like you and Jello and you know other other independent record you know, uh, producers and makers. And, and so still telling that story now, I think that's what, uh, for me, you know, and the inspiration I draw and I've read your book, you know, both of them actually. And I've, I've been, um, I continue to be inspired and influenced by the things that you're doing. So, you know, I think that's the point of adulting. Well, well, I think ah, you're wrong. Well, that's a good, that's a good point. I, I like your idea of telling stories um i think one needs to be careful about getting too much into the i'm going to teach the following generations because i know i get i tend to take umbrage when somebody is tells me they're going to teach me something sure i'm I'm always i well i shouldn't say always nowadays i'm pretty much always eager to learn uh i was not when i was younger i was not very Mm -hmm. teachable at all i was uh as soon as somebody told me something I didn't know, I was like immediately try to translate it into something that I did know and then start telling them about it. But I do think <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's very important to tell our, our stories or sing our stories or draw them or act them out in whatever way we can. And uh, one thing that, well, I, I tend to come in contact with a lot of people who had troubled childhoods or mm-hmm. adulthoods and, who have a lot of of complaints and sometimes feel like victims, much as I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I try to tell them, I try to tell myself a little time, like our our past is our treasure, regardless of how horrific it might have seemed at the time. And 
and we really did not even go into at all how some of the horrendous low points that that I reached off it's i whenever I reflect on it, I have to be really both amazed and grateful that i I'm even here because I shouldn't be i uh, by almost any measure I should have died a number of times from all sorts of uh insane things that I got myself into um and yet I am here and i i I remember times in my teen years and my twenties when I couldn't think of anything I wanted more than to to die and have it all be over with and something always you know and and I could not see any way forward and yet you know fifty years later and more i'm you know my is this I can't stress enough is the best part of my life by far i mean i obviously I'm not like in the newspaper or on the TV like I was for a while back there in the nineties. I'm not like making a ton of money like I was for a while there in the nineties. Um, I'm, you know, not doing anything really that special, but I feel, I feel at peace with the world and with myself. And I'm just really glad to be here for whatever time I have and to try to make the most of it. So, I want to say this in complete sincerity. I am really glad you made it through those times as a, as both a friend and at times a fan, you know, and the other part of what you just said is so important um, to us. I think as a, like, as we move forward with sort of achieving our goal of this podcast, which is really to give people like some hope and to feel good about life in times that many would consider dark, you know, and, so part of doing that is uncovering the darkness that we have in our past and being able to share those stories, which you do, you know, and you may not feel the same and I totally understand, but you do in a really, in a really eloquent, eloquent way. And when I say eloquent, I mean a way that reaches people who need to hear these kinds of stories. So, you know, the fact that you moved on from, producing these records, putting out bands that you loved. And really that was the reason you did it because you loved them. You know, I've heard this a million times and it's, it's, it's exactly precisely the reason we should do things because we love it um, to sharing your stories with the world and not just doing it by writing them out, but like showing up and being at, at you know, having book events and kind of like, we were talking to Martin Sprouse, and I think he was, what, our second interview? Mm-hmm. And he, he treats his art as his punk band. You know, he puts up those the posts on Facebook and Instagram now of, like, very, like, edgy political, like, graphics. And he's like, Yes, Look, they are. I, I see quite a few of them. <laughs> you know, this that, that's my punk band. There's no time to, for debate. I'm on stage now. It's my band. I'm going to say what I want, and then we're, the song's going to be done, and I'm going to step off. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, and I don't want to filibuster this part of the segment, but I do want to say, like, it's really important. And we try, Joshua and I try to share parts of our stories as we can in these interviews as well. And that's kind of why it's so conversational um, and why I think people have really, like, we've we've had a really powerful response. And, um, you know, so I just, like, going from what you just said around being, you know, fortunate and grateful that you're here now, so are we. You know, and uh, like there, you, you can't measure the the amount of influence you're going to have while something's going on. But I mean, obviously, you knew something was going on in Berkeley well, in the not, late eighties. Not 80s. always, but you're quite right. You but you documented even it. Have a, a, an inkling of how yeah. important what you're doing uh, is going to be right. while you're doing it. Um, it sometimes what you're doing may seem like the most important thing in the world. Other times it may seem totally trivial, like yeah. going to see an isocracy show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and yet you, uh, you don't know which is which you don't know which things will resonate 50, a hundred, a thousand years from now. Um, and which will be totally forgotten uh, by the time you wake up tomorrow. Um, that's, yeah. and so you kind of have to be present for, for, for all of it. Um, so it, it helps to find a, a place where you feel like you fit in. So I, that's I, I'm sorry I laughed out loud when you uh, <laughs> asked if I ever found a, a place where I was I was home. Actually, there there was a couple times that that did happen when I um, got involved with a couple of different hippie groups back in the late '60s. Um, but that was basically. Uh, 
you know, kind of kind of a nonviolent version of the Charles Manson family. It was like all yeah. LSD fueled. Yeah, yeah. We're like, we're a family. We're always going to be together. Yeah, yeah, we're going to yeah. always <laughs> take care of each other and love each other. And that would usually last about six months before we got evicted or arrested. So, yeah. um, yeah, that. But there were a couple times then when I would just be like, oh, finally, I have a real family and I'm I'm home. Yeah. And you know, definitely there was that feeling in especially in the early days of Gilman and thankfully not one that was a drug hallucination because <laughs> there really was right. there really wasn't well in at least in the early days and in among the people I was most involved with there there wasn't really a lot of uh, of drugs or alcohol involved and in fact that was one of the times when I kind of eased up on my own consumption because there was more important things to do like building a club and building a scene right um but- so yeah it, I, I used to always describe coming into in 1987, you know, when Gilman was like in its first year, uh, when it first started to have like a little group of people where you, who were always there, and you walk in the door, and I would describe it as like going over to your best best friend's uh, house when his parents were away and had left the house, and you could and had the whole rec room in the basement to just hang out, do whatever you wanted, be crazy and stuff. That's kind of what it like felt like going walking into Gilman because you knew pretty much everybody and they'd all be like, "Oh, what's up? What's up? What's going on?" You know, and uh, eventually, you know, that that feeling kind of disappeared because it was a victim of its own success. It's like everybody knows where the rec room is now, yep. but you know, uh, I, I actually I, I think I may have mentioned this in the book or in one of my events or something, but uh, there was a point at which both Gilman and Lookout had were were starting to turn into a big thing and I had to make the very important decision whether to keep going with it. It was uh, when my original partner David Hayes decided he wanted to leave uh the end of nineteen gosh, eighty eight, uh no eighty eighty nine. Um one or the other. I'm sorry, I should know this. Uh I think it was the end of eighty nine, but um you know, I had to say, I don't think, at first I didn't think I could do it without him because he did so many important things. And at the same time, I thought, yeah, but this is starting to get really big. And if, if, if it keeps getting big, it'll suck eventually anyway. <laughs> so I, I'll end up destroying the scene. So I went through this whole thing. And this, this was at the time when I was still living in the mountains. And I, I said, well, maybe I could learn from watching the trees, which I did. This will sound hippie-ish, and it is. But I, I would... <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time alone up on the mountain, just sort of wandering around, observing all the changes in the, the bushes and the trees. No, this is the, this the is fantastic. Like this is fantastic. Like you're walking around looking at trees to get like some kind of cosmic message as to whether Lookout should continue or not. Is exactly why well, I started yes, this podcast. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Because what finally I, I said, well, eventually, no matter what I do, eventually it's going to get so big that it will kind of destroy itself or become, you know, kind of not be cool anymore. And then I said, well, I've been watch, I've been up here on the mountain for quite a while. I've watched several, many seasons come and go. And every year, these flowers and these bushes and these trees push up out of the ground and do all this magnificent art of putting their leaves out and their flowers and all this incredible beauty. Um, and only a few months later, it's all going to fade away and die and you know, fall back to earth and be recycled into dirt. And and yet they keep doing it. Why is that? I'm like, oh, well, maybe that's what we need to do too. Is just, you know, keep on cranking out the beauty and the art and let it fall where it may. And uh, you know, nature will take care of itself. Just a beautiful explosion yeah. in slow motion. Well, you know, I mean, the fact that you were – Regardless of what was going on, when you talk about it, it was an opportunity for you to kind of slow down on your alcohol and drug consumption and be more there. The fact that you were there to document this tremendous sort of, you know, event, really, ongoing event for many years, um, and the bands that sort of, that made it happen, um, you know, a lot of transformation happened during the time that you were running Lookout, right? I mean, people left bands and joined other bands and... You know, I mean, it was just like, it was crazy. It was, you know, it was, it was such a unique time in, in music. And, you know, you mentioned Turn It Around earlier and I, 
Yeah, you know. people should see the movie. That's what <laughs> it was a good job. Got a, lot, a lot of information in there. It's a good movie. Yep. It does a good job. I, I I watched it with my wife, who's not from that scene, and uh, I felt like it did justice to trying to explain to her what I'm always trying to explain to her about how magic this was and everything. Yeah. It did a good job. Definitely. Well, Joshua, you just touched on something that I think has been a motif of pretty much everything I've ever tried to do, and that is to, to try to acquire knowledge, however esoteric it might seem or, or obvious one way or the other, and to learn a way of translating it into a language that anybody and everybody can understand. And like that's kind of what you referred to with that movie. It's what mm-hmm. uh, I've tried mm-hmm. to do with my, my writing also is uh, I, I think I've gotten a little bit better with it over the years. I was just looking at some they're, – they're doing a project at the university here to archive all my old writing from the 80s awesome. um, uh, online so that people can have access to awesome. look out in Punk Planet uh, columns and stuff like that. And – you know, I was very ponderous and pompous with my writing back then. I think it's improved, but the idea all along has been, I, I you know, whatever I learn, I want to be able to explain it to, to people and not in big fancy words, even though I know quite a few of them, but to in, in simple, enjoyable concepts that people say, yeah, oh, I want to know about that. Devil, you're succeeding. I, I, I feel like that's like kind of my new mission in life now, I don't know how much you know, like where I spend about half the year um, in in Asia, specifically China, trying to learn as much as I can about um, about the language, the culture, and everything. And because I feel it's like vitally important that most people in our country know nothing or little, next to nothing about it, except what they hear from media and government propaganda, which is it's, it's terrifying because it seems like most of the people in the government, both right and left wing, uh, and, you know, are sort of aim, aiming towards this thing where, well, I guess we have to have a war with them, right. and, which is ab- absolutely insane because it's, yeah. it's not it's not something that would have good consequences for for anybody in any in any way. Uh, and. I don't know. This is we didn't touch on it, but I probably need to mention there. There was a, a lesser-known part of my life was in the 1970s. I was admitted to the very distinguished Asian Studies program at Berkeley and was well on my way to becoming fluent in Chinese and, and in Chinese history. I didn't and know so that. I, I did not. My know intention that was to my intention was to to move to Asia in when I graduated in mid 70s, and which was when China was first opening up to the West. And, you know, obviously my life would have been totally, totally different. But instead, I, I drank and drugged myself out of that program before I finished it. And my life took a whole different course. You know, in my later years, I'm trying to, I guess, return to where where I was. Um, you know, I'm kind of at least back to where I was in terms of fluency with the language. And, you know, um, it's it's I, I, I feel like that's that's my purpose right now, or at mm. least the, the part of it that I'm able to understand is to sort of foster, to acquire and to foster understanding between the cultures. Yeah. I think that I, must feel... I mean, I, I could be full of it, but... No, that's, no. That's it's it interesting like. because we were, we actually, so we we had uh, our interview with A.C. Thompson right before this, and we, we talked about this specifically. Oh, my old buddy, my old tour buddy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. experience with him. <laughs> I bet. Um so he one of the things we talked about was like this whole idea of like you know this kind of like new nationalism and building walls and all this other stuff that's going on and the fact of the matter is given where we are with technology with sort of with commerce we're so entangled at this point with every other culture and country in the world like you can wish for 1776 all you want but the fact of the matter is, we're in 2019. I, 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 I was going to say, I'm so old, I, own some, I know people that remember how bad it was then. Right. I'm a little bit you know, I'm but, joking a little bit there. But you, you understand what I'm saying? But, but so really the goal should be to bridge cultures and understand each other's, you know, cultures and upbringing and the different things that make us so unique and amazing instead of like creating this like different is bad thing again like we we don't need another cycle of different is bad you know and i feel like well 
Like that's been it's a theme. So much, it's not only about difference. It's about this. Uh, I, I, you guys, either of you heard of this thing called the Thucydides trap, uh, which some historians have come up with. No. It's referring. It's referring to Thucydides, the Greek, uh, mm-hmm. one of the earliest historians. But he had this theory that uh, uh, when a, when uh, established power begins to become threatened by a rising, or they feel threatened by another power getting bigger than them, they instinctively think they have to go to war to protect their their spot, and they ended up ruining it for them themselves and often the others too. That's what they're referring to. For instance, it's not so much that. You know, China is different. Of course, it's different, and it has many things to teach us. Just as they, and they know pretty well, they have a lot of things they can learn from us. But the fact is, they're four times bigger than we are. Of course, they're going to be prosperous and yeah. and and more successful in in some ways. But there are people that just cannot accept that. Like, how could somebody else be greater than America? Right. You know, well, a lot of other countries had to learn that before too. You know, Great Britain before, you know, when America took, became the big cheese, Great Britain had to say, oh, well, I guess we're not the biggest anymore. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> we, they, uh, the prime minister of, uh, of the U.K. in the 1950s said, well, I guess from now on, now it's we're going to have to be the Athenians to America's <laughs> Rome. <laughs> you know, the yeah. idea that America was big and strong like ancient Rome, but the Greeks had the culture. So, and so the British were going to help America be more civilized. And it's kind of egotistical, but there was some truth to it, too. Yeah. That didn't work. Yeah. You know, well, it, it worked for a while. Yeah. <laughs> not, maybe not as long as it should have. And then the British became too American. But, like, <laughs> you know, China China has for has been basically, as a history of about 5,000 years, and for about 80% of that, it was unquestionably the, the most powerful, most dominant culture and society on earth right and they have long memories and you know the the recent few centuries when they weren't is considered an aberration so they they get a little bit annoyed when the u.s starts lecturing them about how to run a country that they're like you guys have been around 200 years come on right that's so funny it's amazing um larry i feel like we've barely touched on anything anything (laughs) and uh but there's a lot there's a lot and it was so great talking to you and i'm so glad you came on um i would love to have you on again sometime for a part two to talk about even more stuff down the road and yeah well you don't want to you don't want to over overdo the listener's patience there so uh, think think wisely about that one i'm sure there's a lot of other interesting people out there assuming that i i am in fact interesting (laughs) we think you are you are interesting and you sound i'm I'm glad you do i i i sometimes I sometimes wonder because not some people really like to listen to my stories. Other people look like their eyes are glazing over. Oh, just well, I would actually know. describe you as as interested. That's yeah. what always stands out to me. And to hear you talk about China and knowing that it was something that you kind of burned out on in your youth, and you sound so excited about it I know, and passionate amazing. about it right now. Um, you get to experience it without all the boozing, and it just sounds very rewarding and cool and inspirational to me. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I will say, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I thoroughly enjoy when I get an opportunity to talk to you. And I'm glad that, like, we're sharing this conversation out with people because I think there are some things that you touched on that are important for people to hear. And, you know, there's going to be times where life is not exactly where we want it to be. And it's those times that we need to, you know, hopefully be able to dig deep and ask for the help that we need. And I know one thing I do know, and we've talked about this, you and I, about sometimes we're in, when we're in our worst spaces, you just never know who's going to come to your rescue. And I know that friends that you made long ago at Gilman Street, when you were in one of your worst spaces, came to your rescue. And so... That's very true. And the, <laughs> Very, the, very true. You just never know who's going to be the one that's going to show up. And Yeah, sometimes it's a complete stranger that just like it says, says one, one or two words yep. or just happens to pick you up out of wherever you've fallen and and you don't know where they came from or where they went. Uh, it, it could be that, or it could be somebody that's been in your life all along. Like in my case, my mother, I never got along with her. I avoided her as much as possible for most of my life. But in the last about 15 or 20 years of, of her life, and uh, which ended not too long ago, we became best friends. And I said, oh, she's been here all this time, and I had no idea that she's this 
uh, amazing woman with all these ideas and feelings and memories gosh. that I never gave her a chance to share with me. And, and now, well, you know, it was, although she's, she's gone for three years now, um, you know, I, I still reference her all the time and think of the, the, the times we spent together in those last years, just talking about everything and anything. Um, and like, she was there all along. I never even noticed her. That's, that's so, that's, so that, great. That happens. Uh, a lot of people don't really appreciate their, their husbands or wives or children. And in, in that sense, they're, they're like, Oh yeah, they're always there, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Mm. And then suddenly, Oh yeah. Pretty amazing person I share the house with. Yeah. My, uh, my mom passed away about three years ago and we didn't, it's not that we didn't get along, but I definitely didn't appreciate her. And it was the last six months. I really got to know her and had a very similar experience. Like, Oh, we could have been friends you know, this whole time yeah. and we weren't, uh, but it was well, very special. You just, to treasure, you just treasure the time that you did have. And it's, it's kind of like a, a, a beautiful sunset. It takes, you know, the, takes the whole day building up to it. And then the whole thing's over in like a minute or two. And you're like, what, wait, <laughs> come, yeah, come back. I want to see some more, but uh, you know, it, it's the, the more incredibly beautiful it is, the, the more fleeting and ephemeral and evanescent it is. It, it's just it's there and it's gone. Like Operation and, Ivy. See how I brought it all back home? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me. It's yeah. been a real honor to be on your wildly successful podcast. I, it's actually also, the, I believe, the first podcast I've ever been on. So, uh, but awesome. But also what? apparently one of the best. We're honored. Or We're so up. they say. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time, Larry. And, uh, and, uh, good night. Good night. <laughs> what you gotta do is you stay up, but running out of time.